So it's been over, just over two years since uh, Ron Frost uh, has, has been here uh, to preach for us. Uh, and shortly after uh, Ron's message on that Sunday, I, I asked Ron if I could do a, uh, a Bible read-through with him. Ron has done Bible read-throughs for decades, and it's at a, a pretty quick pace. He's got his system down. So I joined Ron uh, in that Bible read-through, um, I think it was January 4th of, uh, of 2020, right? 2020. It was just before the pandemic hit. And, and that's how I started off the first three months uh, of that year, uh, and, and it was great. And pretty soon we switched to Zoom, um, so I was Zooming him on my phone for, for our weekly uh, meeting together. But it, it, was a, it, was a, it, it was God's blessing to me to start before the pandemic. It was, it was great to, to have this hunger, and it's, uh, it's kept through. Ron goes at a pretty fast pace, and, and I've done the read-through with a couple other guys. Most of the read-throughs I've done have been by myself since then, but I'm about to start one uh, this week with, with someone else. So excited. Uh, we, we've had a long relationship here with Ron. Ron was the uh, interim uh, pastor um, when we were doing a pastoral search 13 years ago. Uh, we've supported Ron uh, with Barnabas Ministries for years, and then a couple years ago, he transitioned to uh, what was, uh, or what is Elementum uh, Ministries. So I'll let him explain those things, but let's, let's give a hand to Ron Frost. It's been that long. Wow, it's a privilege to be back here. I feel like I come home whenever I arrive here and get a chance, especially a chance to, um, to share on a Sunday morning. So I'm deeply honored, and the subject could hardly be a, a better one as far as I'm concerned. This has been a, a life-transforming reality for me, what we're talking about here, the Bible read-through, and getting to uh, do the Bible read-through with Greg and, and some others over the years. Um, I just want to pray as we get launched into this uh, uh, for my own sake. Lord, as I come to you, I want to uh, present you well to others here. As we come to you through your word, I pray for your spirit to be at work in, um, in ways that will be transforming. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll just take advantage of, of uh, what, you, what Greg was just saying about the pace that we do uh, when we do the Bible read-through. We'll talk a little bit about this, this thing called the Bible read-through as my approach to fulfilling uh, the call to Bible reading. And that what it, what it amounts to is just reading the Bible in flow rather than doing studies formal, close, careful, analytical study, which I happen to do as well as do the Bible read-through. That was a decision I made years ago when I started at Multnomah. I thought, well, do I stop now that I'm being assigned huge amounts of Bible reading for my Multnomah commitments? Do I stop my reading through the Bible? And my sense was, no, that's my personal time with the Lord. I don't want to have that interrupted by my academic time. So I just kept them separate. Study was one thing. Reading for relationship was another. So on that note, let me just chase this theme of Bible reading by just commenting on the fact that yesterday I finished up a book that I've been reading for the last couple of weeks by Dane Ortland, Deeper. And um, this is, uh, if you have uh, heard of Dane Ortland's book, um, um, that has been significant on gentle and lowly. I, that's a good encouragement book to read. It came out about a year and a half ago, two years ago. This is the follow-up book to that. So I, I enjoyed his gentle and lowly, and I have just read deeper. And I got to the part, ironically, 
uh, just yesterday where he's reading, he's encouraging, he's got a chapter here on breathing. He talks about breathing as um, you breathe out, you breathe in, you breathe out, you breathe in. And he says breathing in is like reading God's word. Prayer is breathing out. And you do both. You don't separate the two. Oh, I'm a prayer warrior. I, you, know, you can do the Bible reading. I'll do the praying. Well, you're not going to have sound prayer if you're not, if you're not in the Bible. If you're, not, if you're in the Bible, you're going to find yourself praying in ways that you never have before. So I, I appreciated that. But as he commented here, he says, Here's some nine, here are nine common but wrong ways to read the Bible. So I'm going to come in here as trying to offer a counterpoint to some of the bad habits we have in viewing or reading the Bible. So this is Dane Ortland, not me. I just want to take myself off the hook here. He talks about the fuzzy, warm fuzzies approach, where you're reading the Bible for a glowing, oh, that spoke to my heart. I can finish now. Uh, or the grumpy approach, reading the Bible out of nothing but a vague sense that you're supposed to, duty-driven. Okay, check it off. Whew, glad I'm done with that. Uh, the gold mining approach, reading the Bible as if it's a great big mine in which you try to stumble across an occasional nugget from now and then. He calls that confused reading. The hero approach, where you're looking for heroes in the Bible that you can compare yourself to and say, oh, yes, I match up to, I don't know, Samson. Be careful of your stars that you choose. The ruler's approach, reading the Bible and look out for commands the rules approach, not rulers, uh, to uh, rules to live by uh, in order to reinforce your sense of personal superiority over those who don't keep the rules. And this is called the pharisaical approach. Ooh, he's stepping on toes. The Indiana Jones approach, reading the Bible as an ancient document about old stories. Board reading, he calls this. Because uh, the Bible is not quite that lively as Indiana Jones. Uh, See if I can find, flip the page here. Sticky page. The magic eight ball approach. Oh, I need something from the Lord. Mm, ah. Go thou and do likewise. Do what? He went out and killed himself. Oh, dear me. Well, let's not do that one. Aesop's fable approach. Oh, here's a nice fable to live by. Uh, and then finally, the doctrine approach. You go, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Doctrine approach, isn't that what we're supposed to do with the Bible? Learn our doctrines. He says, reading the Bible is a theological repository to plunder for ammunition for our next theology debate at Starbucks. Ooh. Result, ice cold reading. Tasky. Knowledge puffs up and you're missing something that does, in fact, build up. So what I want to do is talk about relational Bible reading this morning and say that what I've done is, is in my fast reading is I just read the Bible for half an hour or so, 35, 40 minutes every morning, and it gets me through the Bible three times a year on average. And it's not that I'm trying to finish the Bible three times a year. It just doesn't matter. It's just I want to spend my half an hour each day, and I won't interrupt that for anything. So that, that's since 1966. I've never had a day without my half an hour in the Bible. And it's my relational reality. I'm an old bachelor, some of you may know. Forgot to get married. And as a result, who do I have for companionship? And the answer is my half an hour in the morning, each morning to be with the Lord. And then I have my prayer time and just have that chance for communion and conversation. So I'm going to invite you to the Bible today. I'm not going to challenge you and chasten you and 
well, I may scare you a little bit because of what the Bible has to say, but what I want to do is let the Spirit of God be the one who speaks today. So that uh, I wrote an, uh, an article for a, a book that's a magazine that's now <laughs> long out of print, Moody Monthly, years ago on this Bible reading approach. And uh, they titled it, this was their title, Let This Be the Year. So that's the invitation. Let this be the year. Maybe this is the year you take up serious Bible reading or relational Bible reading. That's the invitation. So I turned into a Bible reader years ago, uh, 1964, and it shaped my life. And um, as I wrap up my ministry, I'll just comment that I've asked to harvest. You, you, you folks have been dear to me and supporting me. I'm now turning into a retired missionary. So I've asked the church to no longer send me support. And I'm going to just go into volunteer status with my work with Elementum. Uh, I started uh, ministry uh, teaching at Multnomah years ago uh, and taught at Multnomah for 20 years. Did some other ministry before that, but for 20 years I taught at Multnomah. I had a three-year break in the middle of that to do studies overseas. Then I came back and uh, started with, uh, did an interim pastorate at Warren Community Fellowship in Warren, Oregon, Uh, and then started out with Harvest uh, as my next uh, chance to do an interim pastorate. But in the meantime, I was doing work with uh, this ministry, Barnabas International, where I went out and worked with my former students largely. uh, That was my main task with Multnomah students who were worldwide doing global ministries. And I was able to go and do sharing, speaking, caring, support work, and I did that for 13 years. And then two years ago, April, two years ago, just when the pandemic shut the doors of going to Europe, where I used to do most of my ministry, uh, that door closed at at the end of March. No more trips to, literally, that's when Europe said, we don't want any Americans, we don't want anyone coming to our porch any longer. And it was just, it happened to be the time that I had transitioned over to Verge, and then it became Elementum Ministries. And so I've done that this coming April, that will be two years now. So it's been a joy to be involved in uh, Elementum, which is a ministry offering pastoral care and leadership to people who are being trained or doing training to college-age young adults. A lot of churches don't have that territory of the church covered. Uh, After high school, it's done. You're, You're out on your own. And yet it's the time when the concrete is being poured. And the question is, is anyone setting out good forms for the concrete to be poured into? I hate to say it, but when I started teaching older ages, that was more like chiseling concrete, <laughs> you know, a little harder. Uh, so anyway, working with people who are pour- working with those who are, are setting up the forms for pouring the concrete, it's been a great time. And I will continue to work with them, uh, but on a volunteer basis from here on out. So thank you very much for the support and the love that I've received from Harvest. And you can continue to pray for me. Anytime you have frost on your window, Ron Frost, I say, oh, Lord, be with that man. He's out there doing something. Who knows what? So it's my joy to be here. Now, my own cycle, as I mentioned, in Bible reading started a long time ago when I was a high school kid raised in a Christian church, evangelical church, but walking away from it as a 16-year-old. I thought it was a lot of charades. People talk good on Sunday, walk badly on Monday. I saw a lot of that. I just said, I'm sorry, I've got no time for this. If this is not a real thing, why am I bothering to pretend? 
It's just pretense. It's sheer nonsense. I've had enough of it. I'll give credibility to my parents, but as a 16-year-old, you quit looking at your parents and you look at other people and say, something's broken here. I just don't buy this thing. So as I was walking away from my Christianity, I, I said, well, this is hard because a friend of mine, Dave, had died in a motorcycle crash as a 16-year-old, just got his license. And after he died, it was sort of like, too bad about Dave. Have you heard the latest, and this will date me, Beatles song that's just come out? And it was sort of like, wow, is that all the significance that Dave had, that he's gone, and it's now too bad about Dave? Have you heard the latest on whatever it was? It's such a weighty thing. Just got a call, a note yesterday from the former pastor at Good Shepherd Community Church out in Gresham, where I was involved in the rotation of teaching there for a time. And one of my friends, Paul Norquist, his wife, Michelle, just fell over dead. She, he's the pastor of, uh, of uh, worship at Good Shepherd Community Church. And they found her body just laying there as she was walking on a walk yesterday, a woman in her early 60s. You know, life comes and just all of a sudden that's the measure of what are you about? What difference do you make? Uh, what were you here for? And uh, so, for, in my case, Dave was the one who gave me that wake-up call. I went, whoa, what's so, who, it's, what's life about? And the answer that I gave to that question was, I don't know. I don't know what it's about. Why am I here? What am I doing? I have no idea. So with that as my buzzing question, I ended up going to a church camp by really a set of circumstances that I won't bore you with, but I'll tell you what, they caught my attention because the circumstances were clearly orchestrated by someone bigger than me. I could tell that. I said, am I a puppet here? What's going on here? I ended up at a church camp in Montana, Clyder's Christian Ranch, and was asked to be a leader of 40 other high school kids in spiritual matters. So I was certainly looking like a goody two-shoes. They thought I would be a good one to be an inspirational leader to my peers. But on the inside, I knew that I was no longer confident that God really was there. I thought it was all a charade, and I was ready to walk away from it. So I said that day, that was the first day of the week of Hillside here. We had afternoon time or morning time available at the camp that day. That was the first day of the week of camp there, at high school camp. And I went out and said, God, are you manipulating my life? Are you there but not talking to me? If you're there, I'd like to hear from you. If you're really God, if you are God who created us as communicators, why don't you communicate? I was angry. Why don't you talk? Why are you always silent? What's the point of talking about you as a God who's worth talking about when you don't talk to us? So here I am. If you have anything to say, I'd like to hear from you. And otherwise, I'm going to write you off and, and just, there's no, you, you may be there, but you're useless if you are there and you won't talk. So here I am. I'd like to hear from you. I thought, well, you can't barge into God's office and tell him, you know, if he's God, you got to, okay, so I will wait here until you speak or until I'm convinced you won't speak and can't speak or something. I don't know. And I'm just going to go down and announce I will not be a spiritual leader because I don't believe in God. So kind of a crisis moment for me. 1964, Clyde's Christian Ranch in Montana on the Boulder River. So I sat there for an hour and a half, and nothing happened, birds and flowers, and it was a beautiful place. If, if you ever watched the old movie, A River Runs Through It, I was sitting on the hillside that looks on the Boulder River where some of the key uh, visuals of that movie were filmed. It's about fishing, and it's a beautiful location. So I'm sitting here, well, it's beautiful. It's not a bad place to sit on a nice summery June day. So as I sat there, nothing happened until finally... 
something did happen, and I didn't hear a voice, but I did have a clear and independent thought that went something like this. Try reading your Bible, dummy, if you want to hear from God. Well, okay. So I had one with me, and I picked it up, dusted it off, and started reading it. And I read the, the Gospel of Matthew, and guess what? It started talking to me. Jesus started talking really loud and clear. If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It'd be better for you to go to hell, you know, to, to lose your, your, your members than to go to hell without addressing your sin. And I went, ooh, you are harsh. What do you want? Well, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. <gasps> I can't do that. And I kept reading. This Sermon on the Mount was rough and tumble stuff. And I said, well, tell me more. Well, no one can serve two masters. You're going to love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and the world at the same time, which is what I had seen as the hypocrisy in the church that I was going to. People on Sunday were very different from what they were like on Monday, including my fellow high school students in the youth group. And I went, okay, so what do you want? Well, which of you, by being anxious, can add anything to the span of your life? Instead, what you need to do is uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let him add all these things to you that you're worried about. Let that be his turf, not your turf. He can take care of you. Oh, man of a little faith. I went, okay, well, no faith. Uh, I said, okay, so seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. I'm yours. And I gave myself at that very moment to the Lord. I said, I'm yours. Here's where I am coming after you. I'm going to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. I'm going to take you up on what you've told me here for the rest of my life. And it was like a weight came off my shoulders. I literally was converted, and I am still converted. I'm, today is a ripple that's extending from that day in 19, June 1964 when I met Jesus. And oh my goodness, the weight that came off my shoulders because I didn't have to play God anymore. And didn't have to, it's your turf, if I die tomorrow, it's your turf. I'm yours. You do what you want with me. But how does it work? And the next thing I read, now I'm up to chapter 7 in Matthew. Well, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open. For what man of you, if, you ask, if your son asks him for bread or for fish, would give him a stone or a snake? If you then, who are relatively speaking evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those that ask him? okay, here I come, ready or not. I said, how come I've never gotten this before? This, I've been in the church for years. My mom knew Billy Graham. I mean, my folks met and married at Wheaton College. What's going on here? And, well, many people come to me in the last days and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many mighty miracles and cast out demons in your name? And I'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Oh, so personal introduction is a key issue here. Oh, dear. And so then the road is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and few there are that find it. So I began to realize not everyone in a church is necessarily, even if there's a profession of faith, is genuinely someone that knows Jesus. Uh, this is eternal life, Jesus said in John 17, that they know you, Father, and they know me. That's eternal life, relationship. And the word know in Hebrew is pretty strong. It's, uh, I was learning Hebrew and and uh, the Hebrew teacher, I said, well, Ani, I'm working on the Hebrew, Ani, I, Yodea, no, uh, Shoshana, Susan. Oh, the teacher goes, no, 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 no. If you know Susan, you have a baby. Okay. So no is a little more than having information about. Okay, so that's what we're talking about here. What is it to know God?
And the way to get to know him is through what he has to say. You never have a relationship where you're not listening to the other person in that relationship. And so that's the encouragement to, that we'll offer here in this Bible reading thing is how important it is. And so it turns out that God in his grace took me from that summer to a church in Spokane where we moved from Montana to Spokane. Dad finished his Air Force career. And there in Spokane, the youth pastor, Art Branson, was a guy who was a, my goodness, he was a Bible guy. And I asked for the Psalm 34 uh, to be read this morning, uh, because that was the psalm he quoted all the time, Psalm 34, 8. Oh, you guys, taste and see, the Lord is good. It took me a while to figure out it was art quoting the Bible, not the Bible quoting art, because it was so much a part of his life. Oh, you guys, taste and see, the Lord is good. And he took us through in that last two years of my high school, all the way through the Bible, gave us the ribbon, uh, the thread of the promise of the Messiah, the Christ, all the way through the Old Testament, and into the New so that was a gift beyond measure. And art captured me and I, my own personal growth. Uh, I was addicted to my football, high school football, stardom in very modest terms. And it, God weaned me from that in a wonderfully gracious way, drew me into something far deeper, a life with him. So uh, that led up to the summer between my high school and then starting Multnomah as a Bible college student. And I went to a church camp in Mont uh, church, uh, church construction site in Seashell, British Columbia. And a pastor there, Sam Castles, was a 70-year-old retired missionary, uh, Scottish heritage, um, and trying to get the church built. And he and his wife didn't have a house big enough to host us overnight, but he invited us over for breakfast every morning. And then we'd go and do church construction, trying to get a church building built as he was planning a church in his 70s. Uh, came to a beautiful location, discovered there wasn't a church to be found, so he planted a church, and now they needed the building. So two of us, Steve and uh, I, came up from our church in Spokane as helpers to get that construction done. And in the morning, I'll never forget my first morning with Sam. Uh, Sam, I love the trees and the orcas and the water here. They were looking right across at Vancouver Island along uh, across the Sound. Sea Shelter is looking on the edge of the North British Columbia coast, looking across to uh, Vancouver Island. He says, oh, he says, it's beautiful here, and the trees especially, aren't they wonderful? He says, you know, when you think about it, trees are a gift test in more ways than one. You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life in the Old Testament in Genesis, and of course, Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there'd be no grace of God to let someone who is uh, became, was, died, separated from God because they, uh, of their disobedience. So God says, I cannot let you eat of the tree of life because there'd be no grace to wrap an immortal body around an immoral soul. So he chased him out of the garden until the problem could be solved. He says, when we go and see that in Deuteronomy 21, it says that no one has ever hung on a tree unless they've been accursed by God. And Paul picks that up in Galatians in chapter 3. He says, there it is. Jesus was hung on the cross because he took a curse, not, not his own curse. He was not a curse because he was sinless, but he took the curse of our sin upon himself. And on the tree, he became accursed by God. He died, and that solved the problem of our sin. And so you get to the book of Revelation, and what do you find? There's no longer a curse. There's the rivers of life, and there's the trees of life, and you get to eat freely from those for the rest of eternity. It's a good word, isn't it? And I mentioned the trees, and it took me all the way through the Bible. The next morning, oh, now that reminds me. He's got his cup of coffee again. 
You know, uh, that reminds me of uh, Melchizedek. There he is in Genesis 14. We don't know where he's come from. We don't know anything about him. And then he shows up. And, and we find out in Psalm 110 that there's a, prophet, there, there, there's a prophecy there that there's a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Well, what's that about? And we find out when we get to the book of Hebrews that Jesus was a, was a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he spent the rest of breakfast talking about that. And the next morning I said something, Steve said something. All that reminds me. I said, Sam, 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 how do you do Everything we say in the morning reminds you of the entire Bible. How do you do that? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Just, I don't know. Just, I said, did you take themes of the Bible as a course at some point? No, no, I just read my Bible. Well, I do too. A chapter a day keeps the devil away. Hmm. You know? No, he says, I read it. Well, uh, well, how do you read it? I just read it and finish and start again. Okay, how much do you read it? I don't know, two or three times a year. About half an hour every morning, me and my wife, we, we just sit here and spend some time reading. How long have you done that? Well, since I became a Christian. I was uh, 20 years old. I was, uh, I'm 70 now, so that's 50 years ago. I said, have you read through the Bible between 100 and 150 times? And he looks at his wife, and she looks at him. Yeah, that'd be right. Yeah. But it's no big deal. It's just what they did. A half an hour. If you've got an important relationship, a half an hour is not a lot to spend. And that's what he was doing. I said, I'm starting today. So I read through the whole Bible in the next six weeks. And I found God has a personality. There's the big secret. If you don't do serious Bible reading, you'll never discover that the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are the source of what we call personality relational realities are birthed out of the triune father-son-spirit relationship. And from that communion comes our communion, if you want to know what real communion is. And I began to realize that, and I said, whoa, I'm never going to stop doing this, and I've done that ever since. So that was 66. So I've, out, I've outdone Sam now. You know, it's been a wonderful thing, but I don't give any more attention to it than he did when he says to us, well, yeah, that's, been about, that's about right. So not how many times have we done it. It's just that the half an hour each day is just the joy of my life. And um, so reading the Bible, Art got me going, Sam helped me out. And so the question I have today is what difference, speaking of Dave, what difference was, did he make and what difference did I make? And that's the question that we have to ask every one of us, what difference do I make? Am I making a mark on anyone? In light of eternity, so what? What are you doing that makes a difference in light of eternity? This life is going to be over. I'm, I'm thinking of the death yesterday. I'm stunned by it. I never dreamt that she would be gone so soon. And poor Paul. Paul and Michelle were one of the sweetest couples you could ever hope to meet. And I don't know how Paul's going to manage well, hey, life comes to an end, and then comes eternal life. And that's the question we're asking here. So what? What difference does this life make in light of the next life? And so uh, the second question is, do you really know God? In other words, I thought I knew him. What I really knew was about him when I was in that high school situation. I finally had to be realistic and say, I don't think I know you. Could I have a conversation with you? And I went and said, okay, if you're really there, I need to talk to you. So that's an invitation I would offer to any of you that is still have a God you know about, but who you really don't know in the personal sense that I'm talking about this morning. The third question I want to ask is, um, 
Who are you? Are you open to mentoring? You know what Sam did for me, what Art Branson did for me. Um, Greg and I teaming up. I, I, I always have uh, uh, chain links with me that I pass out when I do a Bible read-through. It's 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. The things you've seen and heard in me, Paul said, these things pass on to faithful men who can then, then teach others also. That's four chain links. And the mentoring role of passing on what's really important to others in your family, among your friends. That's the deepest thing you could ever give as a gift, as the communion with the living God that you share with that person and invite them to share it with others. So, uh, in the final question, is your life truly important, or are you just biding your time until you die, trying to collect as much as you can so you die with stuff that won't matter once you're dead? So, so what? You know, you, you've got to ask the so what question. So that's what we're doing here today. So let me go on and ask two questions uh, in the balance of our time here. What is important? What in life is really important? What lasts? In John 8, we'll take that uh, passage here where Jesus came and was speaking to a group of people who in verse 30 it says, they, as he was saying these things, and you can read that in context if you like, uh, as he was saying these things, many people believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So that's the key question. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And his assumption was, that he actually didn't get a good response. This is the people who believed in him, in the end, were ready to stone him to death, get to the end of the chapter. That's what it says. They picked up stones to stone him to death. So what their level of belief was, something was not working. And Jesus put his finger on it. He said, I'm just letting you know that you have to be a member of the family. Servants will not go into eternal life, but the family members will is what he's basically saying then. If God were your father, he says, goes on into the rest of the text, chapter 8 here, if God were your father, you would love me. As it is, you cannot bear to hear what I have to say because you are of your father the devil and you want to use me, but you don't want to follow me. You don't want to know me. You want to use me. I, I'm a source for you to use. And by now they're ready. Well, we were ready to be, make you king. In chapter 6, it says a group of people tried to make him king. And these are probably the same crowd. They find a charismatic figure. They want to follow him for their own sake. And so Jesus said, I'm sorry, I won't, I won't have that. Instead, I want you to come and be my people, to be my followers. And so if you're truly my disciples, abide in what I have to say. That's what it is to be a disciple. Listen to what I have to say. So uh, just, you know, you recognize that God by the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father, will go to another passage that really affirms this reality of God's Word as being something that He treats very significantly, very importantly. So we pick it up in um, 2 Timothy 3, where um, it starts out with the last days in chapter 3, verse 1. Difficult times will come because people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient. And that's some of my neighbors, by the way. Okay? And it goes on and says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power in verse 5. And then we pick it up in... Uh, Verse 10, but you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. So here's the chain link idea. And then we'll pick it up here, down here in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what, I've, uh, what you have learned and, if, uh, and, and have firmly believed, knowing, talking to Timothy here, 
from whom you learned it, and how from childhood uh, you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, the writings, and are able to make that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And all of a sudden we discover that we do have something in the word here that equips us for what's really important. And the way we get to know what's really important is to abide in the word that is breathed out by God, by the work of the Spirit, led by Christ who came and lived among us. He knows what it's like to be human and who offered himself to take the problem of sin and solve it. So what in life is important? And the question is what actually lasts? Jesus says, my word will last forever. Whatever I say will endure if you want to know what is going to be a good foundation, I don't know what the stock market's going to do this coming year. But who cares? Because this is an enduring investment compared to investments that really don't last in the long run. And so the second question we want to ask, are we turned, are we tuned, attuned to God's calling? Do we hear his voice as the key attraction in our life? And what we want to do is just say it's not duty-drivenness if you're going to do this as a discipline, I'd say, sorry, I'm not going to have much to say to you because this is not a discipline. This is a delight. And to taste and see that the Lord is good is life-changing stuff. And you have to taste and see that for yourself. Come and just abide in his word and then know the truth that can set you free. And the Spirit of God is the one who begins to carry that forward. So I pick it up in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. Catch that? It's the, not every lamb or sheep is going to hear his voice, but he says, my sheep hear my voice. So I'm conscious of the fact that as I preach or speak this morning, some of you are going to have that wooing calling if you haven't done Bible reading before, saying, yes, you need to try this. You need to try this. That's the Spirit of God, not me. And that's my urgency for you. Go listen to him. If he's nudging you, encouraging you to go forward here. Pilate. Here's a guy that didn't listen. Pilate says, so are you a king? Well, you were, you, what, 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 who are you? Jesus says, well, I'm actually coming to speak the truth. And he said, everyone who is of the truth listens to me. And Pilate, in his golden opportunity, says, what is truth? Despised Jesus and crucified him. Okay, so Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you abide in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Over against falsities that are going on. Has this been a year where we've heard truth and lies? Oh my goodness, you want to know where the truth is? Here's where the truth is found. Soak in the truth till you can start to sniff out what's true and not true. And we'll find that it starts with Jesus. So I would encourage you to take a walk later today, tomorrow. Have a conversation directly with Jesus if you've not been a serious Bible reader. And say, what about that? You know, it's a funny book. It's a weird book. I mean, really, that's a hard book to read. And the answer is, yes, of course it is. How do, you have a, how do you have a message that will work over the course of 5,000 years with different languages and different people and cultures? And, you know, what you do is you, give out a, you make a puzzle that you can puzzle out, and you'll start to discover there's actually a linear, linear flow to it, that there's a promise after the fall in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman, go figure that one out, is going to come in that seed, Genesis 12.1 through 3, 
and then verse 7 as well, is going to be through the seed of Abraham. And through him, the blessing will come to the nations. And that blessing comes through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that blessing then comes through Judah. And you can chase that in Genesis. And you can get to 2 Samuel and discover it's going to be through the life and offspring of David. And King David is going to have a son. And that son is going to come and be the Messiah. He's going to die on the cross. And it says in Isaiah that someone is going to come on this mountain, swallow death. Who is it that swallows death? the answer is Jesus. You go to Isaiah 53 and you discover everything in the Old Testament about the one who's going to be like the shepherd that's led to the slaughter. And in his quietness, he was slaughtered for our sake. And the Lord laid upon him your stinking sins and mine as well. And he died for your sins and mine. And after that, he gives us life to be set free from the way we used to live as independent agents, living with the lie that we could be like gods. So there's a Bible truth there, and you have to read through it, and you'll discover it's all there. It's just not going to just blast out of, out of the pages at you. But if you're reading through it for half an hour a day, you'll start to get the rhythm. You'll start to get the feel. Sometimes you just skim the text. That's fine. You get to the son of, son of, son of, or the fat and on the kidneys, and the, you know, just skip through it. It's fine. Just move through it. He won't be offended. But if you keep reading it, it'll eventually start to make more and more sense. But in the end, you'll find that you taste and see that the Lord is good. So I would encourage you to find a reading partner. I'd say if you read about half an hour a day, you'll get through it in about four months. Have someone that you're reading with. It's not bad to get off the habit of just studying and reflecting, reflecting. It's good. That's useful. But if you have an audio Bible to pace you, that is a gift. And I do that many times. I'll just have my ESV audio Bible, and I'll punch that in at twice the speed because that's the speed we really talk rather than the ponderous Bible talk. And to have that pace you so you're not... And don't go backwards. Just read it in the next... If you miss something, just read it through again next time and next time and next time and next time. And you'll discover that it starts to accumulate and you start to go, wow. This is truth that sets us free. Now, it's upsetting truth because the world lives upside down. What's important in the world? Be significant, be successful, get to the peak of the pyramid, have good security, die happy. What's the real answer to God's point of view? The upside downness of the Bible, the capsized nature of God's word. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Uh, sorry, James and John, just get off your high horses and go out and serve people. Have this mind in you, Paul said in Philippians, or, yeah, Philippians 2. Have this mind in you that was in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count his equality with God as something to cling to, but emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, even to the point of dying on the cross. So what we find is the Bible will turn our worlds upside down and give us a whole new set of values that will be so different than the values of people near you. And you start to invite them to repentance, not by forcing it on them, but by inviting them to the transformation it offers. So taste and see the Lord is good. It's an invitation. And um, if you find a partner, meet up like we used to do once a week. We just share verses with each other. Each guy gets 10 minutes to share as many verses, not talk about the verses. I don't want to hear what someone says about the verses. I want to hear the verses themselves that have been underlined during the course of the week. And in 10 minutes, you only get one out of every 20 verses that you've underlined. And you have to be absolutely arbitrary and just say your 10 minutes is up. It's my turn. And you flip it over. 
And you'll find that there's a sweet fellowship that grows out of that. And uh, then when you're done with that, find another partner. Do it again and again and again. Okay, so there's your, there's your invitation. Should you be willing to do that in the new year? It will be life-changing if you haven't been doing this already. So let me pray and give thanks to what the Lord is doing among us. Father, I know that you are nudging some here to do this. I, I just pray that they would take a deep breath, go out and have a conversation with you, and have that sense of relationality that makes the Bible start to make sense, that you speak your heart through the Word of God. So may your Spirit bond us, awaken us, invite us, stir us, cleanse us, wash us with the water of the Word, and can we find greater joy than we've ever had before. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.